Hello, everyone. It's Eves checking in here to let you know that you're going to be hearing two different events in history in this episode. They're both good, if I do say so myself. On with the show. Hey, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was January 26, 1700. At about 9 o'clock at night, a magnitude 9 earthquake hit the Pacific Northwest in North America. The Cascadia Subduction Zone, a plate boundary that extends from Northern California to Vancouver Island and British Columbia, had ruptured. It broke at least 1,000 kilometers, or 621 miles, of the boundary between the Juan de Fuca Plate and the North American Plate. It only took about 15 or 20 minutes for the wave to reach the coast of North America, causing massive destruction like sudden land subsidence and the drowning of coastal forests. And while all that devastation was happening on the coast of North America, the western half of the wave was headed toward Japan. It reached the island 10 hours later. The tsunami that struck the coast of Japan was devastating and well-documented. But in Cascadia, history remained unwritten. Native stories were passed along through oral traditions. So much of that history is lost. But folklore from the region at the time does allude to huge earthquakes and massive flooding. Because information couldn't have traveled anywhere near as fast as it does today back then, nobody linked that earthquake in North America to the tsunami in Japan until centuries later, when a seismologist put the pieces together in a 1996 article in the journal Nature. Before that, the 1700 tsunami in Japan was dubbed the Orphan Tsunami. Many of the stories the native peoples told about the earthquakes and tsunamis can't be linked to the one in 1700 specifically. After all, the region did have a considerable amount of seismic activity, and ground shaking and flooding were motifs that showed up often in tribal stories. But there are some stories native peoples told that most likely point to the events in 1700. For instance, there was a story that Agnes Matz, a member of the Talawa tribe, told cultural anthropologist Cora A. Dubois in 1929. A grandmother had told her grandchildren to run to the top of a mountain as the waves came. And when the children looked back, they saw the water destroying everything. And in the 19th century, Billy Balch, a leader of the Maca tribe, talked about how water had receded from the Nia Bay in Washington and suddenly came back in, submerging, quote, the whole of the Cape and in fact the whole country except the mountains. So even though there isn't much recorded history from the period, and we can't be sure exactly what happened throughout the region when the earthquake struck, we can say without much doubt that it was disastrous. On the other side of the Pacific, the tsunami that hit Japan went from the northeast to the southwest coast for anywhere from 8 to 10 hours. Floodwaters and fires destroyed homes in Kuagasaki. Crops were damaged in Atsuchi. And in Tanabe, a storehouse, moat, and farmland flooded. These are just some of the recorded stories of what happened the day the tsunami struck. Record-keeping was impeccable in Japan, and much of the population was literate. All the written records come from the island of Honshu, where the capital city, Edo, was, which is Tokyo today. But even with all those records, 
the origin of the disaster was unknown. Where had the high waters come from? At the time, the Japanese people knew that earthquakes could cause tsunamis, but most of the people who wrote about it then didn't call it a tsunami. Instead, they called it things like flood and high tide. I mean, how could it have been a tsunami if the earth hadn't shook beforehand? For a long while, geologists didn't really know that faults in the Pacific Northwest could create quakes so strong they could ripple over to Japan. But in 1960, Ninomiya Saburo linked early earthquakes in Japan to Peru and Chile. And by the 1980s, researchers were figuring out that the ghost forests and silt layers they observed in the region were the result of an earthquake. Over the years, scientists managed to narrow the formation date of the ghost forest using radiocarbon dating and tree rings. By 1987, geologist Brian Atwater and grad student David Yamaguchi had determined that an earthquake happened sometime between August 1699 and May 1700. But the 1996 journal article wasn't the end of the research about earthquakes in the Cascadia subduction zone. The thing is, an earthquake happens in Cascadia about once every 243 years. And the likelihood of a major earthquake occurring in Cascadia in the next half century is about one in three. The question now is how to prepare for the inevitable. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more today about history than you did yesterday. If you want to know more about the Cascadia earthquake and Japanese tsunami of 1700, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called The Orphan Tsunami. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Chandler Mays for all his production help. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi again, everyone. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, where instead of going back to the future, we go back to the past. The day was January 26, 1808. William Bly, the governor of New South Wales, was deposed by a military coup. The military was in power for two years, during a takeover now known as the Rum Rebellion, though this name was not used at the time. In 1788, the first fleet, led by Captain Arthur Phillip, arrived in Australia from England. On January 26th, the ships arrived at Port Jackson, marking the beginning of British colonization on the Australian mainland, a place that was already inhabited by indigenous Australians. The first fleet included military and government officials, their families, and other colonists. But it also included hundreds of people convicted of crimes and sentenced to transportation. New South Wales was founded as a penal colony. Philip became the first governor of the colony. Governors represented and took instruction from the British government. They were the supreme authority in the colony, and because the British Parliament was far away, they were able to exercise more power than Parliament prescribed. The New South Wales Corps, made up of several hundred men, formed in England in 1789. Many of them were unskilled or semi-skilled men who were struggling in Britain and looking for a better life in New South Wales. 
In addition to better wages and living conditions that the men could look forward to, the officers got the opportunity to engage in trade, land grants from the governor, and free labor from convicts. At the same time officers grew wealthy and lived comfortably, people in the colony dealt with food shortages and poor infrastructure. Since the colony did not have enough currency, trade was handled through barter, permissory notes, and coins. Convicts and lower-ranking military members were often paid in goods, especially rum imported from India. The officers of the Corps monopolized the trade in rum, buying it up and exchanging it for goods and labor. Because of this, they became known as the Rum Corps. The commanding officers of New South Wales Corps took over after Governor Philip returned to England in 1792. During their time in power, they controlled the colony's economy. They administered the colony until Governor John Hunter took the reins in 1795. Hunter and the next governor, Philip Gidley King, fought the military's monopoly on trade, but to no avail. In 1806, William Bly became the governor of New South Wales. Bly had a reputation for being tough, and he began efforts to control trade monopolies and corruption among the officers. The Corps' officers began to resent him. Bly soon clashed with former Corps officer John MacArthur over a land grant, and conflict between the two continued over other matters. When Bly had MacArthur taken to trial over an issue involving one of MacArthur's ships, the court included a jury of six Corps officers. The trial escalated from Bly accusing the officers of treason to the Corps' commanding officer, George Johnston, issuing an order that Bly be removed from office. On January 26, 1808, men from the New South Wales Corps marched from the parade ground on High Street to Government House, followed by a large crowd. They found Bly and arrested and deposed him. Johnston and MacArthur then took control of the colony. Bly remained under arrest in Government House with his daughter for more than a year. The next governor, Lachlan Macquarie, took over in January of 1810. The 73rd Regiment replaced the New South Wales Corps. Macquarie canceled all land grants and court sentences made under the military's rule and he called for, quote, union, tranquility, and harmony, declaring that everyone appointed to an office of law after the coup would be immune from prosecution regarding their actions while in office. In 1810, Johnston was convicted of mutiny and dismissed from the army, though he later returned to New South Wales and lived a comfortable life. MacArthur had gone to England, and he was ordered to be tried for treason when he returned to New South Wales but he did not go back until he was given permission to return without facing trial in 1817, on the condition that he would not be involved in public affairs. MacArthur was appointed to the New South Wales Legislative Council in 1825. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on social media at TDIHC Podcast, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also shoot us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow with another one.